are here in 11FS headquarters in London WeWork for episode 3 of Blockchain Insider. Thank you so much to everyone that made our first two shows a giant success. And today we are going to break down a guy holding up a buy Bitcoin sign gets $15,000 donated. He may be my second favorite person this week. We take a look at the developments in DLT and corporate blockchain. And we talk to Melton Demoise from the Digital Currency Group. But now it's on with the news. Okay, joining us for the news this week, I have a co-host in Ajit Tripathi. Ajit, good to have you with us, sir. Great to be here, Simon, on the other side for once. Yes, indeed. Consultant from PwC, back on the show once again. Uh, Paul Gordon uh, is with us this week. Paul, a uh, little bit about what you do, sir. Hi, Simon. Thank you for inviting me along. Um, so I've organized the main Bitcoin and blockchain-related uh, meetup group in London uh, for the last five years or so now. So kind of had that backseat view of uh, of the kind of changing narrative in this space. A pillar in the local community of course and we are very very lucky to be joined by jeff banman uh jeff thank you for being on the show uh simon thank you very much for having me big fan of uh, this show and your uh, previous show i'm a former uh, regulator was at the uh, cftc where i uh, was responsible for setting up lab cftc and have now uh, left and i'm on my own setting up an independent consultancy well, I'm sure there'll be lots coming from that consultancy and, and a long and storied career, which we will be interviewing at some point. But the time is now for some news. And the first story uh, is actually one that we covered in our first show was uh, Tezos. Uh, so this is one from uh, TechCrunch and Coindesk. They managed to finish their token sale with $232 million. So listen to Blockchain Insider Episode 1. There's a false summary on our blog of the interview we did with those guys but this is a lot of money Ajit like does it is this just hype or you know I mean Tezos is a good project but yeah I I, I mean for full disclosure I have I invested my own bitcoin one bitcoin in this project and I invested uh, because I knew nothing about it Right. If I knew a lot about it, it would have been a little bit harder to invest. I mean, uh, no criticism of Tezos, but at the same time, 232 million is the kind of money you uh, should raise to start a car company, not necessarily a cryptocurrency startup. Uh, but I mean, it is what it is. And I think to be fair to the Brightmans, they didn't expect this. This is 10x over what, what they expected. And they have done their homework in terms of managing how the currency will be released to a foundation and really trying to be sensible with this token sale. But from your perspective, Jeff, like what does this kind of thing mean? Is It's very different to what we're used to in financial markets. Uh, it's a fascinating development, Simon. I mean, when you uh, look at uh, capital formation, people who are starting a relatively new enterprise have managed to raise uh, a very eye, you know, eye-opening, attention-getting sum, and they've managed to do it through a relatively new mechanism, one that you know looks like it's the type of structure that could be repeated by others. I think people around the world need to take notice of this. Cool. So um, moving swiftly on, because we did cover that in, in episode one, there's my favorite story of the week, I, I got to say. So Janet Yellen did her regular sort of uh, update to the market. Are we going to do the uh, interest rates? Are we going to change the interest rates at the Fed in the US, which would affect the entire economy? And there was a guy standing behind her live on the news holding up a sign that said, 
buy Bitcoin. What what an absolute hero. Well, it turns out, according to an article on CNBC, uh, that uh, the guy has actually received $15,000 in donations. Um, do you know a little bit more yeah, about this one? So, I mean, this is just, he has just got six Bitcoins. The guy is a legend. He deserves a lot better than that, right? <laughs> yeah, but one of the things I would say is that if the Fed chief had held up the sign saying buy Bitcoin, we would have been really scared right now. And <laughs> fortunately, that wasn't the case. And it's it's just a, a guy who got a little bit excited and, you know, he's definitely a champion of the community. Uh, it's, 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 it's a fun story. Um, Jeff? Well, it's, it's also funny. I mean, you know, for, for years we've seen it uh, at sporting events, people uh, sit in, in the front row where they know the cameras are going to be on them and they hold up references to Bible versus John 3.16 or 22 or, or whatever. So it's kind of fascinating that, you know, for a lot of people, crypto is the new religion. <laughs> the yep. black church exactly <laughs> the gospel according to satoshi <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it was it was good and, uh, i'm very pleased for him that he uh, uh raised his fifteen thousand or so dollars i think he you know at the end of the day he didn't actually hold up a qr code with the sign he might have actually uh, raised uh, more funds if he'd done that and uh, <laughs> so he, he wasn't looking for the donations but i think it was a, a friend or a colleague actually published a, a bitcoin address on his behalf and the donations came through but it, it just shows the uh the charitable element of the community i guess well, which well, is also, good yeah well also i mean you can look at this as a beta version of of this surely the next one will be much more professional paul and they'll follow some of your suggestions <laughs> absolutely point, Jeff. absolutely it's a really good point i mean this is second only to a conversation i had uh with somebody earlier in the week about mortgages which which really blew my mind because i think there's there's definitely uh, a whole bunch of stuff that is starting to cross over into mainstream kind of culture there's people starting to really uh get this stuff it's become the thing that everybody's talking about and this guy is is like a zeitgeist moment it's kind of like from a from a finance geek perspective i think we're going to look back on this moment as one of those things that you would see in the summary of the year um but i gotta move us on because as fun as that was we gotta get on to uh, an article here written in medium uh, a blog post by a chap called will warren who's the co-founder and ceo of the uh, zero X project who are aiming to make a number of different uh, blockchain types and token types interoperable. Um, and he goes on to describe the difference between app coins and protocol tokens. Um, Ajit, do you want to take us through the difference between those two or the summary of this one? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll uh, cite a real world example first, right? So, uh, and in the context of tokens first. So, uh, you're familiar with Kickstarter, obviously, and Kickstarter is a crowdfunding website, right? And there was a startup called Oculus that raised a lot of money on Kickstarter. Uh, and at the end of the the round, uh, they actually sold the company to Facebook uh, for a lot of money. And the guys who had some of the, many of the guys who had actually invested just got the Oculus VR glasses. So you should think of app tokens in that sense, as in app tokens eventually give you the access to the application. As in, it gives you the access to to the product, right? So to the product, I, I, that's correct. I, I talked previously about the uh, you're at the fairground, uh, you want to go on a ride. It costs uh, ten dollars, ten pounds to go on a ride, but actually, if you buy it three years before the fairground is built, then you can buy all of these things for a dollar, and you can use them when the fairground is built, and then you can go on the rides effectively for a dollar. But actually, you might be able to sell those for fifteen dollars because it becomes a really popular fairground. That is true because ultimately 
basically you're getting access to something that's valuable, right? And uh, in terms of the protocol tokens, let's think about Bitcoin or Ethereum, you know, Ether. And these tokens are essentially used to secure the network. What does secure the network mean? Well, so think about it this way. So a community is using the Ethereum public blockchain, right? And which which means that they have an incentive to essentially hack the protocol. Uh, so some of the malicious actors might have an incentive to hack the protocol so that they can use uh, let's say other, com- other people's computers for purposes that different from originally intended or to essentially... They could uh, send themselves money. They yeah. could start to work. At, you know, they could really be malicious. So when we're talking about kind of these uh, protocol tokens, we're talking about this is a th- mechanism to is secure the network through game theory versus an app token, which doesn't secure the network and the infrastructure. It allows you to do a thing in the future. And those are like the two types of token. And I guess you could consider the uh, the protocol token, a more traditional term might be cryptocurrency. So we think about Bitcoin, we think about Ethereum, we think about Ripple, whereas tokens are like this other thing. Tokens are your Tezos, your EOS. So we've now found ourselves where there's there's two types of thing I can buy. And and Jeff, I mean, what's your perspective on this? So, uh, you know, it's kind of thinking about this uh, and really making an analogy to thinking of some analogies to real businesses and your historical businesses that people built in sort of the real historical economy. So, you know, do I care who my customer is and who's sort of securing these tokens? So right now, from a perspective of capital formation, I'm launching a business I sell these tokens. It's a tremendous way to raise, you know, terrific amount of funds. But do I care who's buying those tokens and who's holding those tokens? So for certain types of businesses, I think I do. If the person who's, if, if whoever's buying these tokens is, you know, a hedge fund that's just buying them to hold them, but my business is, you know, a kind of a, some sort of fashion business where I want the people to have the tokens to be influencers, where I'm targeting, you know, teenage girls and the people who are buying these tokens are somebody else other than my target market. You know, these, these tokens will help me raise a lot of money to build my business. But if my objective is to get tokens for use of my business into the hands of the future users, I may not be achieving that. And then I think there's a kind of a second element of that. And I, uh, you know, kind of the example I thought of along those lines was sort of, you know, airplane tickets and airline miles. So, you know, there's an assumption that if I buy one of these tokens and, you know, I want to sell it to Aji because Aji loves this new ride that the amusement park has built, I can just let, let him have that. But if you look at airline miles, it's very, very hard to transfer airline miles. And if I want to give him my airline ticket, it's pretty much impossible for all the reasons that the airlines, which are sort of private actors, have created. So I think there's an assumption, and I think that's tied to, you know, a lot of the very positive ideology in the kind of crypto world, that if I get these tokens, that there will be a sort of interoperable, you know, kind of communal philosophy. But it may very well be that, you know, that these tokens may not lead to the benefits to the business that some of the sponsors are hoping for. Now, a, a token can be assigned to anything of value on the network, right? My favorite example is the basic attention token, which is a major ICO. And if you think about online advertising for a second, then how do I know that the users are actually looking at the ads? How do they, how do you know that they're paying attention? How do you know that they're actually clicking on the ads and you can assign a value 
to each one of these uh, occurrences and then you can essentially exchange this value of which is essentially the value of the consumer's attention on an advertisement and assigning uh, a token to that essentially allows you to exchange value and reward both the consumers and the advertisers for producing quality content on the network in a decentralized manner, right? And that's pretty awesome. So you're allowing new business models to come through because a token is anything of value on the network. I love the new business yeah. model angle, Paul. Yeah, well, um, I, I agree. And I think, you know, I'm very interested in, uh, as a concept, um, what uh, Basic Attention Token and uh, the guys from Brave are doing. But they're first mover on this. They're a relatively small browser. Um, they don't have that much traction yet. And you have to wonder what this looks like in the future. Will every browser issue their own token or are we better off ultimately uh ending up with a single token which is interoperable between all of them because you're when you have all the my concern generally in the to- this token space and this uh, you know this market that's growing is you know the friction that you're potentially going to create with so many tokens is actually going to make it these systems very expensive to use and and to enter and to interchange between them and, and user behaviors are going to have to become very different and, and is building a browser a thing that's really needed okay granted if i've got basic attention token i can buy my way out of receiving advertising love that idea think it's fantastic but i kind of like google chrome and actually the way google's funded like they can afford to do some amazing things maybe this is a new way to build competition with that maybe it's a new business model and i love that there's new competition and new business models because heck we're not still all using netscape we're not using internet explorer things do change um but it's still very very early and and very very nascent jeff i just want to ask you before we move on to the next story um you've worked in a regulator before like what questions do you have about the token space and and what are you what are your views on it generally as as you sit back and look at it and reflect now you've kind of left that position there's a lot of i think almost public expectation that there's so many of these uh, ICOs, they're so new, they're sort of named after something that's regulated, so people are expecting them to be regulated for, for some reason. And, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the regulators who have, you know, commented on it, uh, you know, gen- generally have, have made comments like, uh, you know, that these things tend to be very sort of facts and circumstances specific. They're not very one size fits all. Like, you know, you talked a moment ago about the, the Tezos thing, uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, and they've set a foundation and put some kind of interesting governance and, and controls, uh, around it. Uh, I mean, my sense is that, that regulators are monitoring the, the space, um, you know, not just in, in the U.S. where, where I'm from, but around the world. I can't comment specifically about either what the CFTC is, is thinking. You know, I, I will make the, the observation that, uh, you know, kind of each regulator has, uh, kind of a definition of what's sort of in scope and the, the term that's, that's used in kind of law and regulation as jurisdiction. It's, you know, what's inside your jurisdiction, which comes from Latin, meaning you have the power to speak about it, what's in your jurisdiction and what's not. That's generally set by a statute through the legal process and whatever your, your, your country is. And just, just because a regulator is good at overseeing markets and in the, in the U.S., kind of the SEC is generally the one that oversees capital formation. In, uh, the, the CFTC where I worked is generally responsible for sort of hedging and, you know, risk transfer. Um, but you know what the ability of the regulator to actually regulate a certain thing is based on what the jurisdiction it has that was generally given by the legal regime of its country and so 
you know, I think that there's a public expectation if they see something where there might be risk or there might be fraud that a regulator will step in and do something. But often the regulator does not have the ability to do it unless the specific facts and circumstances cover, you know, the particular type of offering. It's very true. So, and then changing tax slightly, Paul, your ear is as close to the ground in the London community as, as, as anyone would be. What is your view in terms of how the crypto community is really viewing this token space, especially with prices having dipped recently? Do we, do we feel like the euphoria is over? Do we feel like tokens have been a net negative? Like what's, what's the result here? Um, you know, I think everyone's, it's kind of piqued everyone's interest. Um, there's no, no, Bad, such bad thing as uh, bad media attention. Um, so it's definitely the last three or six months has kind of brought a whole new wave of attention, and that's never going to be a bad thing. And we've seen, you know, having followed this for the last five years, we've seen these cycles are ever kind of increasing circles. The, the problem I, I see this time, it's kind of reached a critical mass where um, there is risk to potential uh, retail type investors, which didn't really exist before. And sure. I think that's potentially what is going to be of most concern to regulators because before now you know people we've had conversations with the fca uh, a year or two ago for them the market was interesting uh, but they took a very pragmatic approach saying well it's still too small there's not a lot of retail risk and obviously retail risk is the main concern of, of regulators and i think the risk we're seeing now is and i you know recently i've been to one or two seminars that i found a little bit distasteful to say the least uh, because they very much felt like you know just pump and dump um, you know, uh, promotional seminars to try and push an agenda and investment opportunities, uh, without any kind of regulatory requirements. There are them. definitely people. And I think that. that's a risk and that's unfortunate, really. Well, tokens have an adverse selection problem, right? As in, if you are operating in an unregulated marketplace, guess who will be attracted to it the most? People who have no reputation, no credit history, no, I mean, no incentive to actually come back to the community and raise funds another time. So there is definitely a risk that uh, this unregulated marketplace will attract uh, actors who aren't really honest. And I think, I think the other key thing to, to recognize is that a lot of these uh, kind of headline numbers that are being thrown about, and you mentioned 250 million for Tezos. They really are vanity numbers because the majority of people investing in those at that level or those projects at that level are use a, a lot of them are people that have probably been sitting on certain cryptocurrencies, maybe Ether, maybe Bitcoin for, for some time. They've seen a huge uplift in the value of their holdings or their investment in the last few months, literally in the last six months. I mean, that 250 million that Tezos raised, I mean, I assume say, say half of it was in, in Ether. Uh, so that 125 million was probably worth less than 10 million or it was worth less than 10 million just six months ago. And so majority of that investment is really just a, a vanity exercise and people divesting uh, across but different opportunities. But are we seeing the opposite side of that now as well? Because so many people have taken in that Ether, that Bitcoin that has risen so much in value. And as they've taken it in, quite rightly, they might say, well, I've taken in this risky asset that could disappear in value at any time. I'm going to take this ether and I'm going to sell it and I'm going to go get dollars and euros and whatever else. And could that be impacting the price, Paul? Uh, it certainly could be in impacting the price. Um, whether all of these uh, projects are able to actually convert back out. I mean, I, I would be very surprised if someone could actually, you know, hedge their $250 million Ether position or to exit that position and to retrieve those funds into bank account in dollars at this time. 
you know, I really do think that would, would probably not be possible. And so they're, they're exposed. You know, if you, if you look back at one of the, you know, it wasn't the first crowd sale, but Ether, um, you know, which is kind of, you know, laid the foundation for everything we're seeing now. They experienced the same thing. I mean, they raised a paltry $18 million worth of bitcoins, uh, back in, uh, the summer of 2014. And within two months, uh, that was worth half of that value or, or less, not, not long after that. So, you know, from a startup's perspective, if you're comparing it to kind of traditional investment cycles, you know, how do you budget for that? I mean, it really is just a vanity number at this stage. Especially Ethereum had the code. Uh, written down and ready to run before they actually launched well, not, the token sale. Not really, not really. It was a, another year and a half before they actually they released the code. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like over a year, not a year and a half, but it was over a year. So, Jeff, we have uh, you know rulings from the CFTC that say Bitcoin is uh, essentially a commodity, right? It's so shouldn't ICOs or token sales be regulated as commodity contracts or some sort of commodity derivatives as opposed to securities? Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that's a very complex, I mean, I, I actually think, you know, that's another thing, Simon, that you could have a whole, a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother, a whole nother sh- show on. And, you know, j- just to kind of address that, that kind of thing, uh, simply, and that, and there were probably three or four questions baked into that. So, you know, generally speaking, you know, the kind of the deter- determination for purposes of an enforcement decision that Bitcoin was a commodity by the CFTC in, uh, in 2015, you know, re- really the, the context of that, and I use the term jurisdiction. I'm glad I did earlier because now it comes up, up again, but really it, it has to do with, uh, you know, does, does the CFTC have, have the right to take action in, in a certain case? You know, are we, you know, or my former colleagues staying within their lane or was it outside your lane and you really can't go outside? It'll get overturned by the, the courts or various challenges. And so, you know, generally speaking, what the uh, CFTC oversees is the commodity derivatives market. You know, historically it was commodity futures, which is in the name, and then that was in, ex- expanded to include swaps after the financial crisis and, you know, Dodd-Frank legislation. Uh, so, you know, in, in most cases, the, the CFTC will have jurisdiction over a commodity derivative, uh, but not the underlying commodity itself. So if, if I were to sell mm-hmm. sell you, a, you know, a bale of wheat or a bar of gold. So you and I can exchange soybean over the counter and that's okay. Things like that. Right. The, 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 the time it starts to get, get complicated, and if it starts to get a very complicated fact pattern, the, it's really very facts and circumstances that when you need to, to hire a legal expert to look at it, is when uh, uh, you, you add some other facts. If there's a contract for, for forward delivery, which could be future delivery, when you're dealing with retail customers and then uh you know when you're dealing with leverage or margin and especially the the combination where i i put you know ten dollars down for a thousand dollars worth of bitcoin Mm -hmm. you know when you have that combination of retail commodity transaction uh, there's kind of a body of rules that were set up you know again dealing with you know context where there were uh, fraudsters who were preying on and kind of churning pumping up whether it was kind of retail fx or or yeah. precious precious metals so there's things that uh, developed in that so, context so that's how this sort of so you're saying bit. yes right as in uh, these are effectively ICOs are effectively commodity contracts. I'm either donating commodities or exchanging commodities for something else in the future, and effectively that makes it a commodities derivative. And maybe there is something interesting going on here. I, I don't think. Are you and I in the same room? Because I'm pretty sure we're in the same room. And I'm pretty sure that's not what I said. I do. You no, know, I do. Do believe, and and other kind of legal experts have kind of you know outlined for me kind of fact patterns in which you could design an ICO so that it fell under the CFTC's jurisdiction. Uh-huh. You could also design. Design 
uh, an ICO, uh, in my view, so it could fall, you know, intentionally right. fall under the SEC's jurisdiction. Many of them don't quite, quite, quite meet that. And I think that there, you know, are potentially advantages if you fall under known legal channels that investors have confidence in. I think there's a lot of money on the sidelines waiting to this sort of Wild West stuff settles down and becomes more predictable. I think that's a really interesting point is we find ourselves where these new things don't neatly fit into any one category, but actually fitting into a category from a regulatory perspective could really make these things accelerate. But it would also require them to put in place a lot of process and controls that maybe they're not ready for. Um, look, I, I got to move us on. The next story is uh, one where the startup, uh, fintech startup Revolut, who uh, some of you may have used, this is an FX startup. You go get a prepaid card. Uh, you can use this to to, um, kind of exchange money from a number of different currencies. Very popular in fintech. They've got about 650,000 users. Uh, they're looking to become a bank. They offer multi-currency accounts. Uh, very, very well-known kind of uh, fintech startup that we talk about quite often on our sister show, Fintech Insider. So they uh, recently got $66 million in terms of a fundraise. So they're doing pretty well. They're scaling out. But they've also announced on uh, Coindesk.com that users will now be able to hold, exchange, spend, and transfer Bitcoin the same way they use other currencies. And they expect Ether and Litecoin will soon be added. Um, and I think this is really useful for people as a way of getting money in and out of Bitcoin. Now it just becomes another currency I can FX into. But does that now mean people are treating it like a currency? I mean, let's think about who Revolut's customers are, right? So I only use Revolut to transfer money to Kraken, which is a Bitcoin and a cryptocurrency exchange. That's what I really use it for because it gives me lots of um, money transfers for free in a year. Among the nerds, you're a nerd. Like, I, 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 <laughs> Thank you for that compliment. Uh, That'll make me very popular. <laughs> uh, but uh, Most people that are using Revolut, I think, are using it as a, as a travel card. But and send money to right yeah you send money to that travel card and you can use it abroad yeah well i I think that what's interesting about it i think you've seen this elsewhere is um you know that's as a concept it's not a new idea i mean you have uh companies such as uphold uh which has been around in in the cryptocurrency space for the last two or three years uh similar type of service but they probably not got the same sort of broader traction because they're known just for a cryptocurrency service so another example or a comparable would be you know, IG Index started listing uh, Bitcoin as a CFD two or three years ago. Um, CFD, um, a contract for difference. So it's yeah. a it's a it's a way for gaining exposure to the price of Bitcoin without actually holding Bitcoin. Um, it's how they structure a lot of their their trading pairs. I mean, I just I sometimes trade on IG Index anyway. But they've always had they've had Bitcoin uh, listed on on their homepage from day one. Um, and it's really just to start getting people comfortable with the idea and just to implant the idea in, in their mind. It's not, you know, I think the difference you have is people setting up dedicated, uh, digital currency businesses and they, they have the challenge of, of, of creating brand awareness and utility. I think you're starting to see, I think Revolut's a good example is, well, we have a business model. We think this is potentially going to be part of the future. We'll put it out there. We're not expecting to, this to generate us a huge amount of revenue, but people over time will start to come, just become comfortable. I, I, I want to quiz the room though. How many people have come out of the woodwork for you in the last couple of months and asked you how to buy Bitcoin? Uh, everyone that I've been Everybody telling in the last know. five years. Right. So, <laughs> right. so I, I guess <laughs> about everyone. I guess Revolut must have been getting the same questions because if you've been in this Bitcoin space, oh, you know about Bitcoin, right? Where can I buy some of that from, from every person and their dog? So, uh, I guess Revolut, uh, are jumping on the bandwagon a little bit. Maybe that's what's going on or, or do you disagree? No, I disagree. I, I think it's really about uh, looking at their existing customer base. 
looking at a segment within that customer base that's a little bit attached to cryptocurrency and saying, hey, these guys are using it for transfers all the time and they're transferring Bitcoin from one wallet to Kraken or something else. So why don't we just give them that service and make it more sticky for these guys? So get some customer loyalty out of that. So is it the mainstreaming of cryptocurrencies? Well, it's definitely that, happening. Well, and I think it's, t- it's another typical example. I, mean, I should imagine Revolut's uh, user base is mostly under 30. And the educational process for convincing under 30s to get to know, understand and be confident in cryptocurrencies is very different to anyone over 30. So, you know, it's just an, it will be a natural transition. And the educational process of this, you know, two or three years ago, you had to try and explain the complete underlying workings of the Bitcoin protocol to get people convinced that it was interesting. We've reached a point now where trust breeds trust. And because everyone's friends are talking about it, they trust it. They don't care how the currency works. They don't care how the protocol works. You know, they just rely on the trust of other people. So, and I think you're seeing that. You you made an interesting point that uh, you used to have to explain how it works before you could tell anybody that you should use it or buy it. Uh, It's kind of like, have you ever gone back and looked at those videos of explaining what the internet is from 1995? Like, uh, if you look, if you stick Information Superhighway 1995 into YouTube, you will have a giggle because the way the metaphors that were used to describe what the internet's going to be are ridiculous. You just, I don't care how Netflix works. I care that they've just got the latest content. I don't care that Now TV works or that HBO Go works. I care that they've got the new season of Game of Thrones. Like, that's what matters to me. I had a secret crush on Mag Ryan, and when I saw You Got Mail... I was like emailing every other evening. So, yeah. So that's how it works. So we've got to move on to the next story. Uh, there's a story here from futurism.com that says, uh, Mauritius may become Ether Island, which I guess is short for Ethereum. Uh, Ether Island had me thinking about Easter Island. And I was wondering if we'd see like Vitalik, maybe Joe Lubin with these like long faced statues on an island with no trees. Like what's going on here, Jeff? Are you familiar with this story? Well, I, first of all, I think what, what's fascinating and, you know, I think that they're, uh, you know, kind of working with consensus, the YS, to uh, explore, uh, to create a kind of friendly jurisdiction for kind of blockchain-based uh, uh, businesses. Or, or, But, you know, what, what really uh, excited me about this was uh, it gives me an opportunity to talk about one of my favorite novels, which is Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson. And, you know, th- this is something that specifically in the, the book came out in 1999, right? So he was writing it, you know, probably about 20 years ago now. And, you know, in that book, there's a kind of a Southeast Asian island sultanate called Kinakuta. And the sultan creates an underground data haven, which is going to be an area so that uh, a place where crypto entrepreneurs like Randy Waterhouse, the hero, can sort of, you know, traffic freely in offshore data. Uh, and so, you know, here we are 20 years later and, you know, an island in, in that general region is looking at, you know, what, what sounds – quite quite familiar and and you know i i found his books you know predict <laughs> that's pretty true that's pretty uh ahead of his time there no doubt about it but it, it strikes me though that we've got zug in switzerland which is where everybody's basing their foundation we've got singapore which is where everybody seems to be basing the a lot of the uh, management funds out of we've got a bit of regulatory arbitrage happening here there's, haven't we there's definitely competition be- between governments and authorities right we've got fintech valley in vishakhapatnam in india we've got dubai uh leading the world in blockchain we've got Canada, 
uh, and with with the taps cards actually leading the world in blockchain. So everybody somehow wants to work, lead the, the world in blockchain. Also leading the world in, uh, in something. Photos on boats as well. Right. So <laughs> there is an opportunity for like various jurisdictions to attract technology startups and investors, and you know new ways of uh, raising capital, new types of investment vehicles, and so on and so forth. So I think this is this is a fair shot that uh, the wonderful place called Mauritius is taking, and I would definitely like to visit that place one day and write some smart contracts. It's a good excuse to visit on the Mauritius beach. for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. There's a story here from uh, Quartz or QZ.com from our friend uh, Junian Wong. Actually, are you familiar with the story? So uh, I think this is really interesting, right? For the last two years, we've been talking about blockchain and financial services, and the focus has all been on banks. But now uh, I think the blockchain is getting a lot more traction outside of financial services because valuable assets are everywhere, right? So car dealerships, supply chains, and trade finance, and so on. So in this case, what has happened is that a major car manufacturer, which is Daimler AG, has raised a hundred million dollar bond so you know the german financial system allows for a special type of bond between zero and 500 million euros which requires a little bit less paperwork and disclosure and they have essentially used the a private test net a private network on the ethereum blockchain created their own setup to work with three major banks in germany and raised 100 million euros and this is pretty cool because, you know, this is a major, major, major uh, automobile manufacturer raising real money. Can I highlight that? Three major banks, 100 million euros, bond, testnet Ethereum. Like, people ask me the question all the time, when's this stuff going to be real? When's it going to be real? When's it going to be real? I think there's no obvious moment, but but I would point this to one of those those moments in time where you go, that's interesting. But, but think about the complexity of this, right? So the entire transaction of the loan agreement from you know origination, distribution, allocation, and execution to the next stage of confirmation, and, and it'll take me some time to explain all those terms, to repayments and interest payments. The, so the whole thing is on a blockchain. So the whole life cycle of a, of of the fundraising, uh, and it's bond probably is worth explaining what a bond is, right? So if, if I'm a large company and I need to raise some money, I can do that with debt, and we tend to call those in financial markets to grossly oversimplify. We call those bonds because that is the nature of the contract, and that contract has a whole bunch of steps in it, and those steps tend to be managed by a number of actors in the system. People buy and sell debt, which is a concept which is kind of crazy when you first look at it from a retail perspective, but people do, and because they're willing to buy that risk and that debt creates a return but that life cycle is kind of manual and paper-based it's a huge amount of paper you have to hire many lawyers you know who essentially do the same work for every transaction I, I know Preston Byron who is a friend of ours will probably not like this comment but there's a lot of repetitive paperwork which costs corporates a lot of money you have to find an investment banker you have to pay them fees so we're essentially eliminating a whole bunch of fees and intermediaries and sort of improving the efficiency and that's that's pretty awesome but I think it's, it's a big deal really changing the workflow and the process oh, right? Totally. so if, if I'm right. the uh, COO of operations at a bank or if I'm somebody who's a, a large corporate treasurer and I need to raise a bond like the cost and the difficulty of doing that business the amount of people I need at a bank to sustain uh, that whole bond process is huge and we, we find ourselves in a position where they still sometimes use fax machines for a lot of bonds and if they're not using fax machines then at best they're emailing a PDF and that PDF then gets picked up by somebody who takes the information in that PDF keys it into a system manually and it which point you get fat finger errors people just see the wrong thing key the wrong thing in and to kind of take that and make it a system that works kind of straight through that could have huge benefits well, and two guys really need to worry about this uh, transaction bankers and lawyers right so a lot of fees are going away if this continues if mercedes continue down this path 
Because the corporates could do it directly. Absolutely. So, so a couple of things really struck me about this that were uh, fascinating. So, so one one of them, um, and you know, when you're leaving government to set up your own thing, you you spend time going back and and looking at your CV to try to remember all the things you did. And you know, I, I you know, Paul talked about people under thirty using crypto, and I definitely am I'm placing myself as as not in that under thirty category. But in in two thousand two thousand and one, I, I worked for a, a dot com. A startup that was, uh, its focus was direct issuance of commercial paper, uh, and commercial paper is, it's not, it's, it's sort of a short-term financial instrument that's kind of like a bond, but shorter dated that, that corporations use to, uh, help finance them, themselves. And, uh, the, the purpose of this platform, which, you know, today we would call a fintech, right, was to do direct issuance of commercial paper direct to investors who want to lend money to the company instead of going through investment banks that were typically underwriting these. And in addition to the uh, private equity folks, there were three strategic investors who were direct issuers of commercial paper. And one of them was Daimler Chrysler all the way back in, you know, they've been trying to do this for a while. So what's really interesting is they were actually, they've been actually an an early adopter of of this. And, you know, in, in 2000 and 2001, they, they, they tried to do this kind of thing. And, and here, here they are, you know, doing it again, you know, through today's new technology. So it's interesting though that they tried before and it never quite became a thing. Could this be one of those examples where they've tried again and it never quite becomes a thing? Well, we never had anything to pay money to other people on the internet, right, Paul? What do you think? Well, like I think that's the thing. I mean, there's, there's, you know, be careful not to conflate two different sides of, I guess, um, the, the whole story because, you know, this is very interesting to see that we're now seeing proof of concepts appear going beyond the lab. Um, and I think if you look um, at other examples of uh, some of the consortium that have uh, been working on various projects, one of the challenges they have, if we go back to regulation, is the uh, the technology has kind of outpaced the regulation. They've, we have technology now, which means that certain intermediaries, which are legislated for within a transaction, are no longer required. So there's a challenge in actually adjusting and get approval from regulators to take those intermediaries out of the equation. So that that's one side. Uh, but that is very different from what we were discussing earlier about how regulators are going to be treating uh, the public blockchain space where there is, you know, it's far less of a walled garden. It's not a walled garden at all. If we looked at, look at these, uh, these private use cases, it's very much a case of, uh, having a walled garden to experiment with and a lot of control. Um, we don't have that in the public space. So, but I think it's very positive that we're moving in that direction. And the reason it has come about this time as opposed to maybe, uh, you know, 15 years ago is whether people would admit it or not, you have the, potential for a challenger on innovation in this public network which might take years to actually you know come to fruition but they're there um and you can't really ignore them now so you know you you know this has become an opportunity for people to say look we probably should have done this years ago we've gotten in a room we're making things more efficient and our regulation is written for the last generation of technology now we have better technology we should probably change the regulation to uh, uh, make more efficient markets absolutely yeah and i'd say you know certainly you know one of the catalysts for uh, you know for lab CFTC was a, a concern that, you know, a, l- a lot of the rule book might have been written for an era when things operated in different, you know, with kind of trading pits and hand signals and so on. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, you know, by engaging with innovation and with the innovate, innovators in the innovation community, the regulators can make sure they don't have sort of a- analog rule books for a digital world. Um, That's a great line. But, right. uh, but the, yeah, so you don't want to be, you know, an analog regulator in a digital world. But, you know, just, just to compare numbers also, <laughs> you know, I was thinking, you know, kind of the, the, the type of, you know, probably, you know, extremely very careful work that was done to, to do, you know, what, from what I can tell from reading the story, they, they raised the hundred million euros and then they paid it back immediately just to test all the bits of it. Um, compare that to the Tezos, um, you know, ICO that you talked about at the, at the top of the show. They, they raised 250 million. They probably did it much faster. I'm guessing. I don't know. And they're holding on to it. And, you know. <laughs> and that's the open space versus the closed space. And I think Paul's point about you can't ignore the open space is probably the one message that has come through in every episode of this show. Even though I suspect a lot of our audience works in financial services in the regulated space. But we do have a story now coming firmly from within the regulated space where um, R3, the consortium of what nearly 100 financial institutions and in, and technology companies and others, uh, have beefed up their security. So um, I think it's actually it's probably it's probably worth um, talking a little bit about who R3 are um, and then why why they um, this beefing up of security is is interesting because I think they're they're kind of coming at it from a hey look it's nice that there are all of these new asset classes it's nice that there's all of this amazing innovation but you know the existing financial markets have their problems and that's a massive massive market it's it's all of the money in the world it's quite big so yeah so i i think that this is a terrific story uh, i mean let me start by saying this right so r3 are trying to invent a new type of decentralized ledger Right. So today we have ledgers which are centralized, as in someone maintains a history of transactions and contracts uh, or who owns what asset on behalf of everybody else in the market. So that creates a lot of problems because you have to reconcile the view of the participants with the view of the, the centralized intermediary that imposes a whole bunch of costs. And that cost is recognized by banks and everybody has woken up to the potential of blockchain and said, maybe we can create a much more efficient capital market infrastructure. Now, R3 are trying to build a platform or R3 are building a platform they're a consortium of 70 plus banks around the world and they have looked at requirements from all the banks and they are creating a technology that will allow banks to essentially maintain uh, legal contracts right legally enforceable uh, derivative contracts because that banks they have can a all lot of on. legal contracts that they're passing between each other on a day-to-day basis and as we mentioned earlier in the show they're in a position where a lot of those contracts are managed by people and paper processes or manual processes and, and reconciliation is a word we we're going to use a lot but reconciliation is a key word because what that means is does what i see match what you see which is surprisingly hard to do in financial services yeah and, and i will quote richard brown this CTO of R3 here, it's not just I I see what you see, but it's also that I know that you see what I see, right? As in, I can trust that your view and my view of the world are the same. So that's an incredibly hard thing to achieve without using a blockchain. And unlike uh, the Bitcoin blockchain, they they try and instead of having lots of people in all of the world see it, they just say that the only people that need to see that they're the same are probably you and me and Jeff, because he's the regulator in this. Well, absolutely. Now, the, the reason Bitcoin works is because the identity of the participants is not known, right? So transactions are known to everybody. Everybody sees all the transactions. But the only reason you can do that is because you don't quite know who sent money to who, who is exchanging value with who, right? Now, that doesn't work in regulated markets because you have KYC, 
you can't do anything in financial markets you without knowing know who, who your customer is you know who you're doing with absolutely so which means that you need other solutions for privacy and confidentiality now privacy means you have the ability to protect who did the transaction who did what right and confidentiality is the ability to hide the actual transaction so there is a subtle difference confidentiality is what happened uh, you, you you don't have to reveal that and privacy is you don't have to reveal who did what. Because right. it's not illegal for me to sell you a bar of gold for uh, £10 and to sell somebody else that bar of gold for £11. There is no law against that that I'm aware of. Yeah, and it de- depends on which jurisdictions or which countries we're operating in. Now, here is what you need to do, though. When you actually get rid of the blockchain, right, you still need to uh, you still need a way of uh, verification. So as in, Simon, if you and I are in, engaged in a transaction, and in this case, in fact, you and I are computers, right? So you and I are computers that are representing uh, us. So we should so be now, talking ones and zeros right now. Let's make some beep noises. So what I'm really let, let's insert some modem sounds here. Like <laughs> oh yes, that would be fun. You got mailed at the bell, right? So so I so what I have to do is I have to send you the data, right? So I have to f- send you the entire custody of uh, the, the value. As in, before I send you anything, I need to show that I actually owned it. So I have to ch- and and Coda relies on a. Uh, allow me to use another another buzzword which is or another jargon which is utxo model as an unspent transaction output as in the proof that i actually owned it right so now uh, what what r3 are doing is they're using this intel processor uh, new types of intel chips which are actually going to be in all the computers going forward called xeons which allow for a special set of instructions that allow uh, me to send you some data and make sure that you haven't you can't actually see the contents of the data of the data but then you can actually still verify the transaction so i'm making a remote procedure call i'm actually invoking a uh, i'm sending you some data and i know that you are actually invoking the code that you were supposed to invoke you can prove that you didn't actually see the data but you were able to verify the transaction so you were actually able to verify that i actually owned the the assets that I sent you. And that's fundamental to all contracts, right? So I get privacy, I get confidentiality, and and then I get a lot more throughput because now I'm using this hardware-based solution instead of using uh, complex mathematics like zero-knowledge proofs and so on. So it's a way of doing confidentiality with hardware and privacy with hardware rather than doing it, yeah, like you say, with with, with zero-knowledge proofs or some co- other types of cryptography that you can guarantee. And also I think there's a performance benefit. Right? There so is a massive performance benefit in fact, simple zero-knowledge proofs can take up to 40 seconds to run uh, today on regular computers, right? Now with Xeon uh, processors and using this special enclave thing, which is a portion of computer memory where you have this data, and you can actually do this uh, much, much, much faster. And in fact, somebody tried to implement Bitcoin using this architecture, and they were able to run thousands of transactions per minute. So I think that mixture of performance and privacy is definitely what they're going for. I mean, we will get all three on the show to explain this in, in more detail in the near future, I'm sure. But uh, Jeff, you had a point. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's it, it's very helpful to have Ajit's explanation of, you know, the privacy and the confidentiality and these other uh, challenges. But, you know, the uh, these are problems that I think are really going to need to be solved in order to for there to be kind of widespread adoption of these sort of particularly some of the more open Blockchain uh, protocols in in regulated financial services, and today, you know, the 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 types of problems that 
that Ajit was describing that are, you know, innovators and, and you know, pioneers are, are trying to solve. Like today, when regulators get information, my former colleagues are not worried about the, you know, obviously you're worried about confidentially and security, but you already get it in, you know, very secure methods. You have, you have known trusted experience method. You know, you're still protecting from cyber and all that kinds of things. But, you know, in order for these sort of new methodologies to be acceptable to regulators, uh, you know, I think that that they're going to need to solve some of those things. And it, it sort of brings into, uh, I think, relevance or sharp relief kind of open blockchain versus kind of closed permission centralized systems. And yeah. the things that, that regulators kind of get their data from today primarily are, you know, kind of closed systems where there's a known central trusted operator or, you know, the participants who it directly regulates are the ones who are providing uh, data into a centralized place. And, so, you know, I, there are a lot of potentially transformational benefits to getting data faster in real time of higher quality that's, you know, tied into the business processes people in trade finance or other activities are using. Um, but until these can be really be adopted by regulators, I think that, that all these problems are going to have to be solved. So you have something that's not just sort of kind of okay, but that's actually better yeah, than what regulators gonna, already have. And you aren't going to get there without KYC, AML. Privacy and confidentiality. And these are the requirements that banks are under from their regulators have to be able to manage them. So the, what R3 are designing for, I, I suspect what Hyperledger are designing for, what Exony are designing for, what Symbion, like all of these people in this kind of private space, they're designing to a set of requirements that have existed for a long time to run in businesses that have been well known. And so it makes sense that what they're building is different from what you see in the public um, domain. But actually how they're learning from each other, from, from my perspective, is most interesting but i hadn't really seen many in the open space going towards this kind of uh, secure enclave direction before and 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 for that that to me is is, is really interesting paul did you have any thoughts well I, th- I think it's definitely i mean we've seen over the last few years it's uh it will become an essential requirement of um you know looking at the broader infrastructure looking at uh, hardware solutions to secure uh assets on these networks i mean you've seen compromises of a number of exchanges over the last few years. Um, I don't imagine that's something that's going to completely disappear. There's kind of better methods and um, of security, but it's going to be an issue ongoing. And, you know, I think there's lots of theoretical ideas still out there or already out there in terms of how these get addressed, but they need to be built. They need to be developed. They need to be proven. Uh, and I think both sides, again, we've, we've discussed the two sides of this fence of, uh, you know, these the private walled gardens, which, um, you know, in themselves are going to be a good kind of foundation for experimentation. And I think you'll see uh, kind of a learning exercise on both sides what Um, what i really wonder about is will we see the type of stuff that r3 are building and hyperledger are building because this is all open source stuff now this isn't something that used to happen in financial services corda and r3 have a github page hyperledger has a github page you can go and learn from how they've done this and implement it yourself in ethereum or tezos or or anything else well there is a cornell professor called emin associate professor called emin gunsirer who actually implemented bitcoin using a a similar architecture before r3 even tried it right so and he was able to uh, 
get a massive amount of transactions per second. And he was he actually put forth a proposal for scaling Bitcoin using these processors and similar sort of architecture. But I mean, you can't get everybody in the Bitcoin community to adopt uh, these new expensive Xeon processors. But for banks, it makes a lot more Maybe sense. Maybe you can get 70 banks to adopt Yeah, you it. can Who definitely knows? get 70 banks. I to think do it. most people in the Bitcoin community or the purists anyway will uh, just be um, kind of having Intel produce their chips and, uh, and, and not accusing of the NSA having a backdoor into them. They do have you know, a kill never, switch you know, on these rightly chips. Rightly or wrongly, yeah. you're just never going to also kind of you know, be able to mm. kind of remove that suspicion. Um, so, but look, that's, uh, that's another conversation, I think. Well, well, I think, you know, to, to, you know, just bring a kind of perspective, like the, this convergence of, um, you know, kind of what, what you described, the fact that you have this o- open source, uh, software that you have kind of access to the cloud. So kind of the startup, you know, the kind of the, the startup model, you know, 15 years ago was you kind of came up with an idea, you tested it with some customers, you got, first you had seed money, then maybe you raised enough to do a build, you got expensive hardware, that cost you five million, it took you a year to 18 months to build the thing. You go back to the same people you talk to and, and, you know, you show them what this prototype, and you say, is this what you had in mind? Right. Now, you know, that whole process, you have the idea, you work with that, you scale it up in the cloud, that process takes you two to six weeks instead of a year and a half. So kind of the pace of creativity, the pace of innovation, because of the convergence of these forces is, is fantastic. So, I mean, the, the opportunity is enormous, you know. It's it's really phenomenal how, how yeah, quickly people think, can innovate it's, today. It's one of my tweets that ten years isn't how long it used to be. It's more ten years are much shorter now. Well, and and it's it's fascinating. You know, I kind of chaired a kind of a kind of roundtable of some operational risk pro- professionals uh, in in New York about a month ago, and I was sort of a- asking them, you know, just to discuss in this, you know, what were what are the impacts of fintech on your organization and what are the things that that concern you? And all of them, you know, talked about kind of just the pace with which things were were happening and the speed and, you know, can we keep how do we keep up with everything and the speed at which we need to look at things, react to things and how do we stay ahead of it? I think it's a big challenge. Fantastic. So lots of big challenges in front, lots to learn from both the open source space and the closed source space. But I, I got to round us off because we've uh, we've had a long show today already. There's just so much to cover in this space already. A big thank you to our guests. So, uh, Jeff, where can people learn more about you? Sure. So uh, I've got a website, uh, www.bandmanadvisors, B-A-N-D-M-A-N-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com or Jeff at Bandman Advisors or find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Bandman Jeff. Brilliant. And Paul? Um, well, we regularly run meetups, uh, usually once or twice a month. Um, so if you go to meetup.com forward slash coin scrum, uh, you can join our events if you're ever in London or passing through. And then if you're also interested in looking at accessing digital assets um, from an exchange perspective, uh, you can come and find out more at quantave.com, which is uh, my startup in the space. Fantastic. You're a man of many talents. And Ajit? Well, go to pwc.com or search for PwC and blockchain on Google and you will find everything about what we've been doing. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, coming up, we are speaking to Melton Demoise from the Digital Currency Group. Great. I am here with Melton Demoise from Digital Currency Group. Melton, how are you? I am delightful. How are you today, Simon? I'm pretty well, thank you. Thank you so much for being on Blockchain Insider. Of course. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to join. Alrighty. So um, could you just explain a little bit about who Digital Currency Group are, what your role is, that kind of good stuff? 
Sure. I think this is uh, (laughs) confusing even to me, and I've been with Digital Currency Group for over two years now. Um, So Digital Currency Group, we're a little bit of a unique company because we are precisely that. We're a company. We're not a fund. So Digital Currency Group, the parent company where I work, um, our primary activities are investing in building and buying Bitcoin and blockchain companies, leveraging our insights, our network, and our access to capital. So my primary responsibilities as our director of development are focusing on the insights and the network component of our business. Um, What that means is at a practical level, DCG has four operating subsidiaries. Um, Coindesk, which everyone hopefully is reading that listens to your show, is a media events and research platform, which we were an investor in and acquired in 2016. Um, We have Genesis Trading, which is an institutional broker dealer that enables high net worth individuals, hedge funds, investment firms to buy and sell digital currencies. And they're fully regulated here in the state of New York, which is a rarity in the Bitcoin space and the digital currency space. We have Grayscale, which is an asset management business. They have two products in the market. One is a Bitcoin investment vehicle, um, which is traded on the OCTQX today. It has about half a billion dollars in capital under management. And then they just launched this past May an Ethereum Classic Trust, which I'm sure we'll talk about later in the show, uh, which is focused on providing investors with exposure to Ethereum Classic as an investment product. And then we just launched our fourth business um, within my team, the development team, which is called DCG Connect, which is a enterprise-focused membership business that basically provides our insights, our network, and support with applying blockchain technology to various enterprises. And there we're working with enterprise technology companies, as well as banks, FIs, um, industrial companies, just a great mix of corporates who really want to be close to what's happening in this space and want to leverage the great uh, network we've built around the firm. So um, the other piece of DCG that probably most people know us for is our investment portfolio. So we invest in both Bitcoin and blockchain companies, as well as digital currencies themselves directly. So to date, we've invested in over 105 companies across 28 different countries. It's quite a diverse portfolio, starting with companies like BitPay, Coinbase, Ripple in 2013. Obviously, now it's diversified quite a bit to include companies like Axoni, who are focused on post-trade clearing and settlement, leveraging the blockchain, companies like SkewChain that are enabling supply chain um, traffic and provenance using blockchain technology and just a whole host of other applications. And then we also hold a portfolio of Bitcoin, Ethereum Classic, Zcash, and we're just starting to dip our toe in the water on the ICO side. Hope we can talk about that as well. But that is certainly a confusing and and weird landscape that um, like everyone else, we're just trying to navigate. You guys do a whole bunch of stuff. And I guess people more often know you for the investment side, but a, as you say, there's a whole bunch of other things. And I think if you can think of a blockchain company and you go to crunchbase.com, usually DCG are in there somewhere. So you guys, you guys have done all sorts, but the media business, the asset management side, there's, there's a whole bunch of interesting things. And I guess if anybody's in a position to see what's hot right now, it's probably you. So, so what do you think's really, really hot? What's the state of the market? Like what's going on right now? Yeah, so I think we're at a really interesting inflection point. In the past year, so I want to go back one step to 2015 when I worked on 
DCG. I came over. DCG didn't exist when I joined. We were really just thinking about the way we were going to launch this company. Components of it existed, but we were bringing it all together and kind of building this narrative. Um, in 2015, it was really about Bitcoin primarily. It was Bitcoin as a store of value and asset class and Bitcoin as a payment rail. Fast forward to 2016, everyone started talking about the blockchain and every magazine you read, every news article you read was about how blockchain was just going to completely disintermediate banks. And now we're in 2017. And I think we've come to the realization that there is room for Bitcoin and digital currencies, certainly the rise of Ethereum and a whole long tail of other digital currencies has opened up an entirely new world of opportunity to people of all stripes, businesses of all stripes. And the world of blockchain, I think for many people has progressed a bit more slowly than anticipated. I'm not surprised, but I think if you were reading those headlines in 2016, um, you may be saying, okay, what, what's next? What's going on here? And what we're starting to see is in the past when people would come in and we'd have a dialogue and figure out how we were going to work together, they were either very squarely in the Bitcoin digital currencies camp or in the blockchain, but no Bitcoin, no thank you camp. And what we're seeing now is the two are converging. So people are really starting to look at digital currencies. They're starting to look at open public blockchain networks. I think blockchain companies are starting to look at what the intersection of Bitcoin digital currencies and blockchain looks like. I think on the FI side, we have had conversations with a number of FIs who are coming in and asking, oh, this Bitcoin thing is actually really interesting. We've had a few high net worth clients move money out of our asset management business into these digital currency hedge funds, into digital currencies directly. Maybe we need to rethink how we're approaching this space because if this becomes a new big asset class, um, they want to be at the forefront. So it's been fun to watch the two separate worlds that I've had to live in start to converge. Um, and even funnier, I think now you see uh, a lot of the conversation is around ICOs, new structures for capital formation, rethinking the way that marketplaces may develop. And so it's been really fun. The last six months have been some of the most fun months of my life. They've also been some of the nights with the least sleep. You can see I have bags under my eyes. Um, but it's exciting. I think we're really at an inflection point in this industry. Don't know which way it's going to go, but I think we're going to start to see a lot of really interesting things happening Q4 of this year, Q1 of next year, that are going to just shock people. Um, and I'm excited. I think that's a really interesting point. The convergence point is one I keep hearing. People keep talking about it used to be Bitcoin is just for like money launderers, right? And it's, it's over there. And then, oh, but the banks are evil, right? And actually now there's, there's this spectrum of just weird and wonderful things between those two kind of binary positions that we find ourselves in. And we've got the cryptocurrency price exploding in June and falling down in uh, July. But actually, as you say, keep an eye on next year because there's so many projects that you hear going Going on behind the scenes and there's just so much innovation in this space and speaking of kind of innovation um i know you looked at building a, an investment case um around a fund on ethereum classic so first of all what is ethereum classic and, and how does one build a business case for for a coin like this is something from a, a banker's perspective or even just from a, a consumer perspective like 
these coins, they seem kind of strange. Like, why should I invest in a fund in one of these things? Sure. Um, so the, the business case, it goes back to the Bitcoin Investment Trust and why Grayscale, our asset management business, created that product. So if one of the hypotheses here is that digital currencies are a store of value, that they represent a new asset class, one of the fundamental challenges is the user experience around digital currencies. If I'm um, someone who's not particularly technologically savvy, if I don't work in tech, if I'm not, you know, constantly trying new products, new technologies, I may not want to go online and set up a Bitcoin wallet, wire money into, you know, Coinbase or Kraken and buy these weird internet tokens that that may be a step too far removed for me. But I probably feel very comfortable working with a fidelity or an existing mutual fund manager or a retirement investment advisor to buy a set of products that could fit into my portfolio. And these are products that are actively managed on my behalf. So the idea was we had built this product around Bitcoin and it had been very successful. So we said, okay, what is the next asset class that's coming down the pipeline? And we looked at Ethereum for quite a while. I think we really tried try to understand the use cases for Ethereum, the actual Ether token itself, rather than the protocol and the, the network. And I think we, um, we had been looking at Ethereum and then the chain split happened. And one of the things that to us from a investment hypothesis perspective is really important is the idea of the economic policy around a token. And one of the things that was just challenging for us to get over with Ethereum is this idea that a group of individuals could change the history of a store value asset of a, of a token. And so for us, from an investment case perspective, while we're extremely excited about Ethereum as a protocol, um, I think as an investment, as a token that we see having long-term fungibility, stability, sound monetary policy, we felt that Ethereum Classic had more to offer a traditional investor. And so the, uh, the use cases we've been evaluating, the kind of the investment thesis we've been looking at is what's the economic policy? What's the monetary policy around Ethereum Classic? So the idea of immutability, the fact that the economic history can't be changed or rewritten was important. I think the second aspect was the introduction of a cap on the supply. So having a cap enables people to have confidence in the fact that there will be digital scarcity. One of the things that drives the value of Bitcoin is this concept of digital scarcity that's cryptographically enforced. And so to us, that was something that was also really important. And we worked closely with the Ethereum Classic community to develop that, that cap. I think the, the second piece, which I alluded to earlier, is really building the ecosystem of applications around Ethereum Classic or ETC that would ensure that the token had functional utility aside from just being a speculative currency. And so that's where we've actually taken 1% of the management structure a fee. Um, so there's 2% fee, an additional 1%, which goes towards funding ecosystem development. And so we have a long list of plans. Um, we hosted a lunch around consensus here in New York for people from the investment community, the ETC community to meet one another. We're looking at hosting some developer events, thinking about ways that we can help people build with Ethereum Classic. And then I think a lot of the opportunity we see around Ethereum more broadly is really being a um, 
um, currency that can fuel smart contracts, IoT applications. And we think there's a lot of room. You're seeing all these ICOs on Ethereum. We think we're also going to start to see some ICOs on ETC. But one of the things we're really interested in is developing a, a more sound policy on how the ecosystem will sort of self-govern some of this ICO activity. Um, I think this morning, you know, myetherwallet.com, which ends up <laughs> providing infrastructure for a lot of these ICOs, they had a bit of a rant um, about the fact that so many of the people who are using Ethereum or the ERC-20 token standard to launch their token aren't contributing to the Ethereum ecosystem at all. And I think that's really challenging. Really, the phase we're still in is very much the infrastructure phase, the build phase. And so we're very much invested in building communities, building networks, building ecosystems around that infrastructure. And so for us, Ethereum Classic, when it came to an investment choice, a, a store of value asset choice was the more appropriate choice. But again, I see a world where Ethereum and Ethereum Classic can peacefully coexist. I think it just really depends on the appetite of the investor so we're in the fortunate situation in which we can let many flowers bloom in the uh, cryptocurrency space right there, there doesn't have to be one good answer but there's something interesting to me there's two interesting points here one is when i asked the question what was the business case you gave me a very comprehensive and detailed answer which actually i think challenges a lot of the conventions i hear from uh, people in the financial services industry that says oh well this stuff is all just the wild west nobody's really put any thought into it actually this is the opposite there's a there's a whole lot of thought gone into this and there's a whole ecosystem system of thinking that's gone into why this is a strong investable asset class and the second question i get is you know when's this stuff ever going to become real and i think the for for man on the street woman on the street the shortest answer is when your pension fund manager has these tokens as part of your pension if they are really sitting in your pension they're sitting in your savings pot like you might not notice that your um, pension fund manager is buying gold or buying oil or buying bitcoin it, it, it doesn't matter but that's when it becomes really real and that's kind of where we're where we're playing with some of this stuff um, and I think, again, what you just alluded to, where we're seeing more people investing in digital currencies as an asset class, I think two really ideal examples are, number one, USAA um, did a poll of what some of their customers wanted. And one of the most requested features was, I want to be able to see my Bitcoin investment balances along my other account balances. And then the second is, Fidelity did the same. So both of those companies enabled people to view their Coinbase balances alongside their other asset balances. And then I think May and June of this year were really interesting months where two days in a row, front page of the Wall Street Journal, three charts, gold, oil, Bitcoin. So the world is changing. Um, there is starting to be a, a recognition of the fact that Maybe Bitcoin can offer investors something different than these other asset classes. And to your point about research, our team at Grayscale has done extensive research. Um, our research associate there, you know, has a background. He worked at Bridgewater, has an extensive background in doing research on asset classes. And we've done a lot of modeling on the way that Bitcoin can help reduce risk in an asset portfolio. We've done research on the degree of correlation between Bitcoin and other asset classes. I just think we're not as as vocal about it. We're here in the office building things that people want to buy, people want to use. So we're not necessarily out on stages or on the front pages of uh, publications. But there is a lot of very thoughtful capital that's moving into this space. And so I'm not surprised at all. 
Cool. I think that maturity of the uh, of the ecosystem is definitely something that may surprise a lot of people because uh, they were looking for uh, DLT, you know, the the hyperledgers, the R3s of the world to be the only mature part of the conversation. And they are maturing as subjects and they are starting to deliver real things. We we talked a little bit about it in, that, in the news section earlier. Uh, and certainly the regulatory position on this is, is maturing as well. Uh, but also, I think the open source space is really maturing. Um, just switching tack a little bit let's talk about tokens because this has probably been the thing that's fueled uh the recent price rises what is your position on a token how do you explain what a token is because i don't think we can explain this thing enough it, it is a genuine phenomenon in my opinion yeah token mania is what i call the phase we're in now but um if you've studied the history of technology and capital formation i think bubbles are a very normal part of new emerging technologies that eventually become normalized, but there is sort of a frenzy phase. Um, and we're maybe in that phase now. I think we're at the just the starting point. I think there's going to be a massive explosion of tokens that's still coming. Um, and a lot of what we're doing now is laying the groundwork for what that will look like. Um, part of it's normalizing the infrastructure, getting some clarity on the regulatory positioning of tokens. But here's, here's how I explain tokens. Um, so the idea is typically when I'm, I'm building a company, when I'm building a software business and a lot of the, the startups that uh, VCs have typically invested in are software businesses. Um, what you would do, the, the costs of building a software business over the last decade have come down drastically due to things like cloud computing and all of this infrastructure you can now leverage to really cheaply build and buy services on demand, right? It makes it easy to build a product that can scale up, can scale down. So there has been sort of this rise of operator-led VCs, people who've been successful entrepreneurs who say, hey, I'm going to take my capital and you use it to fuel more innovation around what I know, which is software. And so you have these costs coming down, you have the technical burden of building a new software product coming down, you have a pool of new capital being formed to invest in these companies. And it's led to really a blossoming of web startups of software startups. Um, and so people who are investing in this have to be accredited investors, typically, and it's very difficult to get access to investing in these private companies that also typically operate in sort of a closed network that they fully own and control. So in comes Bitcoin, <laughs> and it totally shakes things up. And I think a lot of the entrepreneurs, engineers who started working on Bitcoin and open source software development early on started to think about, okay, if we've opened up the way that people are building technologies and now it's all about open source software development, how do we enable people who participate in building that infrastructure and those ecosystems early on, how do we enable them to actually monetize their contributions? And then the second piece was a lot of the businesses that are being built are dependent on network effects. So with Bitcoin, the more people use, buy, hold, store, um, interact with Bitcoin, the more valuable it becomes, but also the more secure the network becomes. And so a lot of these businesses were thinking about, okay, how do we create network effects that incentivize people to continue to engage with our ecosystem? It's almost like web virality, right? How do we create virality, but do it by incentivizing people with what they really care about, which is money, right? <laughs> we, we all offer That's a pretty good incentive. <laughs> 
I don't like, I, why would you do something for free when you can get paid? And so I think a lot of what we're seeing around these tokens is yes, probably 95% of these projects don't really need their own token. But I think the intellectual exercise is if I'm building a business that's dependent on network effects, how do I incentivize people to build on my platform? to build on my technology stack. That's really the killer use case of Bitcoin, right? The reason people built on top of Bitcoin is they knew if they built businesses that were successful on top of Bitcoin, their Bitcoin would become more valuable. This is what ideal sort of economic incentives look like is the more the network's used, the more valuable it becomes. And so we're seeing all of these companies in the crypto space starting to say, hey, what if we created our own token? So tokens have been around since 2013. MasterCoin, which is now Omni, was the first token. Ripple incentivized users early on with a token. Zcash had a token early on. So these tokens are not a new theme. But I think now people, because of the creation of a standard that makes it really easy, really cost effective to launch a token, people are saying, hey, how far can we take this? Um, what new business models does this create? And I think we on the venture side are sitting back and saying like, how do we even treat tokens if we don't own equity, but we own part of the network effect, or maybe we get access to certain services by holding tokens? It's this weird new gray area. And so I'm really excited about tokens. I love the idea that we can democratize capital formation and enable more people to participate in the building of this new technology infrastructure that's going to be massively disruptive. But I think it's also a little scary because the way I see people behaving is, <laughs> you know, greed is a really powerful motivator, but there's a lot of information asymmetry in this industry. And I just worry that um, without the development of more discipline and without our community taking a more active stance around sort of standards and at least the bare minimum of, you know, having some stage gates, not giving founders all the tokens until their networks or their products are launched. I'd like to see us develop some more standards, but I don't want to stifle this token trend. I don't want to stifle it either, Milton, but I saw a great article from uh, our good friend Kadim Schuber over FT Alphaville earlier where he was really wrestling with what a holder of an EOS token actually has. Because if you go through the small print, they tell you it's not a token that secures the network. It's not a token that you can use. It's not a token that's a part of the product in the future. It doesn't represent a claim on any business entity or anything in the future. And actually, um, then you have a lot of people who will say, you know, what should these tokens be? What's the right model for them? And I don't know that that really exists because then you look at the EOS project and you say, there's some great ideas in here that this could be tremendously valuable. The new business models that are being created are extremely exciting. So yeah, let's not dampen the enthusiasm, but let's also make sure that at the same time, we're keeping an eye on, on how we protect people and manage these things in the future. It's, uh, it's an interesting time to be involved in tokens for sure. Absolutely. Um, but again, I think having been in the Bitcoin community for some time now, and three years really feels like 30 years of how fast things move. I do think our ecosystem has a long history of self-regulating, of working collectively to find um, answers to problems. So I do think we're starting to see like a few of our companies who are launching tokens 
um, wanted to sort of talk about creating a token association or maybe developing some best practices. So I do think, again, that people in this space are looking at this. And while they're excited, I do think people are trying to do the right thing by and large. And um, I'm, I'm excited to see people really taking ownership of some of the challenges around tokens. And I do think people will step up and the industry will start to develop its own barometer for what is and isn't culturally acceptable. I completely agree. I got to say, generally, I find willing people wanting to do the right thing is is the overwhelming uh, response. And and credit to people for trying something new and potentially inventing a, a new way of of generating ways of building businesses. But yeah, raising a lot of money without having done anything can raise eyebrows. But if you can prove that actually you're going to lock that money up, you're going to keep it safe, and you're only going to give it back to yourself if you hit certain targets, there's there's a lot of sensible things that that, that could be done. So last question then, Melton. Bitcoin finds itself in a position where there's this question of scale. Lots of people have been trying to make transactions. It can be taking three, five hours, sometimes even up to a day uh, when it's been really busy in recent months to to get a transaction to go through. People coming into the system for the first time that don't really understand Bitcoin, worrying about where their money's gone, not seeing the transaction come back through. What's causing these delays? And, and then, you know, what are the options for, for kind of making that better? Sure. So, I think um, the Bitcoin scaling debate, as people like to call it, has been really fascinating just to, to watch, to participate in. I think at its core, the challenge is this. Um, there are two primary use cases for Bitcoin. One is Bitcoin as a store of value, as digital gold. The second is Bitcoin as a payment rail and as a payment network. Sometimes the visions for those two different use cases are really different because Bitcoin as a store of value requires high network security. It requires resilience. It requires anti-fragility. And Bitcoin as a transaction network where you and I can go and we can buy coffees and, you know, go on the corner and buy um, a pastry from a shop that requires Bitcoin to be really fast. It requires it to be readily available and it requires it to process a high number of transactions. And those two things, um, there are always trade-offs when you're designing a technical system. And I think people sometimes want it all. They're like, hey, I want digital gold and I want Visa. (laughs) (laughs) Can I have it all, please, uh, on a plate? And I want it to be fast. And can it do the dishes? Yes. And can I have a smart contract? And can I make it programmable? And blah, 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 and so on and so forth. And so I think um, what people sometimes don't realize is These visions are possible, but Bitcoin development in the past eight years um, has been deliberately slow. I think the Bitcoin developer community has historically had an ethos of move slow and don't break things. And to the credit of the Ethereum community, I think they move very quickly. They're very willing to integrate things into the core protocol, um, which makes it much more flexible, but it also makes things like hard forks happen from time to time when things are integrated that maybe um, haven't been tested or maybe have unintended consequences. And so I think Bitcoin's ethos in the past has been very much about stability, about resiliency, about security. Um, but a lot of companies in particular are really dependent on the Bitcoin network being 
readily available and being able to process a lot of transactions. And so I think a lot of the scaling debate today um, really has less to do with technology. There are some technical components, um, but really it has to do with the timing of when things happen and who has the power to make things happen from a development perspective. And that's tough. I think there are a lot of politics involved. There are people whose businesses are dependent on Bitcoin either being and staying digital gold or Bitcoin being and staying like Visa. And so it's challenging because in the past, Bitcoin has been viewed purely through a technical lens. I don't think we've really spent that much time building out the social uh, network of Bitcoin or building out really the ethos of our ecosystem or the governance as a feature of Bitcoin. And so as a result, what we're seeing is all of those unresolved, unaddressed issues are now coming to a head in a really ugly way. Um, I do believe that at the end of the day, everyone is vested in one long-term outcome, which is Bitcoin continuing to be both a store of value and enabling Bitcoin to be a payment network, which may require second layer solutions. So I think there's um, a lot of confusion, but I long-term do believe everyone in our community has the same interest and it may be painful to reach consensus. It always is. Um, <laughs> but I, I believe we will get there and I'm certainly ready to do my part to make sure that happens. That sounds great. I mean, we find ourselves in a community with lots of different stakeholders, as they'd say in the banking world, lots of different actors. But I, I guess we also find ourselves in this position where there's a lot of people who want a good outcome. And Bitcoin can't be all things to all people, but we can forge a, a better outcome. And and people often, you know, I, I still get asked the question, who's the CEO of Bitcoin? And actually, it's this weird um, mixture of people and actors and, well, not actors, actors, but, you know, different people from different backgrounds with different economic incentives trying to build a thing that works for them but also for other people um and it, it kind of muddles along slowly but it seems to every time somebody says it's going to die it seems to come back stronger so uh lots to lots to happen in the near future on the the scaling debate and uh Meltem, um you're gonna have to come back for a special episode just on the scaling debate because we can't do it justice with with one question it's a it's a subject in its own right um but where can people learn more uh about what it is you do at dcg and you have a fantastic blog there as well. Yeah, so um, I would say check out uh, dcg.co. You can see our portfolio. Um, we have a great blog where we have our Women in Blockchain series. We've written about 40 women in the industry so far, and I'd love to meet more women and continue writing about the great work they're doing. We also write a lot about the work we do on the infrastructure side, some of the alliances and coalitions and projects we're working on. Um, I'm always on Twitter, so that's a great place to connect if you want to shout at me and share your opinion. I love having people change my mind about things. So welcome all contrarian opinions. And then just the last thing I would say to anyone listening to this is we're all part of Bitcoin, part of the digital currency ecosystem. So if you're interested, if you want to get involved, just engage. There are tons of Slack groups. There's dialogue happening on Twitter. Um, it's very easy to get involved. But if you don't get involved, your voice won't be heard. Uh, I certainly, when I got started, felt like, oh, no one cares what I think. But a lot of people actually do care. And we need more people um, who want to work in this industry. All of our companies are hiring. So if you're at all interested and excited about, uh, motivated by what's happening with blockchain, with digital currencies, please reach out to me. My email is my first name at dcg.co. It's plastered all over the web. Um, you can put it in the show notes, but send me your resume and let's have a chat about how we can get you involved. Thank you ever so much for your time, Melton. You have a great day and thank you for being on Blockchain Insider. 
Cool. So thanks to our guests. Thanks to everyone that's listening. We had some great feedback. One listener, Haley, was was really nice to us um, in some of the feedback we've received this week. Um, and many others have been as well. So thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends. Tell colleagues to listen too. And uh, we'll have more Blockchain Insider shows coming soon.